right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. Uh, we have almost made it through this quarantine period with no live golf. We have uh, to get through this week, and then the Charles Schwab Challenge comes back in full force next week. An amazing field lined up. We're going to be previewing that uh, that event in next week's episode. We're going to hear shortly from Henrik Stenson, a podcast we've been trying to line up for quite some time. It is a shorter episode. I was supposed to have 30 minutes with him. I did what I usually do. I took him for longer than that, but uh, he is a bit limited. He's, as you'll hear, he's getting ready to pack up and go to Sweden, which this was a couple of weeks ago. So he's back in Sweden uh, with his family. He's known for a lot of things, breaking clubs, dry humor, hitting golf balls out of the water in his underwear. Most recently and most importantly, he's known for Callaway's Jaws MD5 wedges. You've heard us talk about them in reads and seen them in videos. Uh, Henrik was in the recent Jaws MD5 TV commercial that if you're a golf channel junkie, you probably would have seen that. But something new on the Jaws MD5 front is that Callaway just released them in a raw finish. I will say this is the fastest I have ever looked at an image of a golf club and said immediately that I need to have it. Uh, they were previously available in like a blingy chrome finish uh, and a tour gray finish, but now you can get them in a raw finish. It reduces the glare for, you know, as you're playing in the summer. A lot more sunshine, going to be hitting your clubs directly. I hate when you have those wedge shots and the sun is just shining directly off of it and you got to go back and hit a different club, the different loft. Uh, and it has the matte look that a lot of tour players prefer. Not only is the new finish available, but there's a new grind. It's the T-grind. has a crescent sole and a higher center of gravity for controlled ball flight. I think I'm going to be getting my new wedges in that T-grind based solely on that higher center of gravity. Uh, I need to get. I need to figure out my distance control. I've not been very good at that lately. And that, that, that They sold me on that line. Hopefully they sell you on it as well. You can check out the Jaws MD5 raw wedges today at CallawayGolf.com. That's CallawayGolf.com to see the new Jaws MD5 raw wedges. I'm telling you, just go look at the image. Please, just do it. Without any further delay, here is the man of the hour, Mr. Henrik Stenson. All right, you have got a new podcast coming out. Is this so you don't have to do podcasts like this anymore? Uh, combination, I guess. <laughs> no, it it was uh, suggested by um, by my good friends at Callaway Golf, and uh, yeah, I really like the idea. It's a chance to uh, to interact with the, with the fan base and the golf fans in a slightly different way than I've done before. So uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I guess my main thought is to is to put you guys out of business. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, it seems to be the trend. I mean, players are popping up almost on a weekly basis with their own podcast. But I do kind of want to ask you how that how that works, your relationship with the media and what is appealing. Not only are players coming out with their own podcast and stuff like that, they're going on podcasts, they're kind of taking a lot of their perspective more in long form. I was wondering, with someone that's been around the media and the game for as long as you have a million different press conferences, can you compare kind of how what what the appeal is of something like that to a player like yourself? Well, I just feel like there's it's a it's a chance to, to obviously interact with with the fans on on a slightly different in a slightly different way and and with the questions and uh, yeah, I, I would say I'm I'm interested in in seeing some of the questions that I'm going to get on on this uh, podcast and on the show and uh, you know what kind of comes out of that segment, but. Uh, just an opportunity to, to share some things that we might not always be asked in these uh, interviews or 
press conferences and and so on and, and give our own perspective so uh, uh yeah i mean who, who knows where it takes us we obviously got a got a list of segments and and things that we want to try and touch base on but i think this is gonna it's not going to be a straight line I'm, I'm sure it's going to be something that will will take different turns as we go along and and as i learn and uh, yeah I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where it takes us but uh yeah a lot of a lot of the media stuff is i guess kind of the same week in and week out so maybe this gives us a, a slightly different chance to uh to uh, to communicate uh, some some different things. Well, you can correct me at any part of this, but from what I understand, the appeal for a lot of guys is also is when it comes to a press conference or media that's actually at a tournament and the questions you're asked, it's often for writers that have somewhat already decided what they're going to write. They just kind of need you to comment on it to kind of weave into that. And you're at great risk of your quote being taken, not out of context, but they're going to pick the spiciest part of it, right? And the context of it gets lost in that you might laugh about it, you might have smiled about it, you might have kind of tried to be fun with it. Have you had any experiences like that where you've maybe seen something you've said in print that wasn't as you intended it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was actually not long ago. And I think, I mean, when we're talking about media, we're talking about something that's very, very wide. I mean, we've got anything from, I mean, we know like English tabloids and... right. The, Small degree Swedish tabloids. I mean, they they just want to have a clickbait on on a website or to try and sell today's you know tabloids. And if you're more into, should I say, uh, uh, serious journalism, it's, it's going to be a different type of story, a different type of question as well. So it's we, we've got a very wide variety of questions we're being asked. But I did an interview with the, with the Guardian in England probably about a, about a month ago. Uh, maybe longer, and it was actually a tabloid in Sweden that that picked up on on a few lines there. And I'm scrolling through the through the news online, and all of a sudden I see a quote from me saying that I was I, I thought I was going to die, and this was all now put into context with the coronavirus and and everything that's going on. And it was actually I said in the article that I had the flu you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I was so, I, I felt so sick. That I thought I was going to die. So it's like, yeah, you can pick one part out and throw it into another, in in another article and, and something totally different can come out. So, yeah, I mean, there's always that risk. Uh, I think in our line and, and in golf media and so on, it's not that often, but it, it happens. Uh, I feel quite fortunate in that sense that I haven't, I don't feel like I've been kind of targeted by by any journalist uh, really in that sense but uh, it, it does happen and uh, yeah sometimes you read a quote from someone and you yeah you gotta you gotta you gotta realize that maybe that's not the way it was intended or meant by that by that person so uh, yeah there's there's always a little risk right right yeah well what kind of I'm curious especially yourself as a European player but you are you are stateside currently but what kind of an impact do you see COVID having on European and international players for the players that are not currently over here there's some additional challenges they have to face such as quarantines once they re-enter the country did you consider any of that while figuring out where you wanted to quarantine? And uh, I, I know you live in Lake Nona at almost full-time. I guess you can help me with that. But do you foresee the travel restrictions having a big impact on how this return to golf will go for international players? Yeah, yeah I think it will It will certainly play its part. I mean, 
of course we all want golf to to kind of get back to normal but I, normal but I, I feel like I mean all of us want the world to get back to normal in uh, as close to it as, as it can and and I mean there seems to be great challenges in the months and years ahead of us to try and get to that so I don't know what my crystal ball is saying and and what yours is saying but uh, it, it's going to be some challenging times for sure and uh, yeah traveling and yeah, just people moving around as as we used to before this pandemic is certainly gonna gonna restrict us, and it's gonna play a part in in how we schedule seasons going forward. And also on on my end, I mean, I'm actually leaving to go back to Sweden tomorrow, so I'm I'm gonna fly uh, fly back for the summer for for at least six weeks, maybe even two months, and uh, I will not be uh, joining the PGA Tour in in this early startup stages. I'm I'm gonna be back with the family, uh, uh, enjoying a bit of more time with, with them and see how we get going. And then I'll, I'll be back probably in the middle of the summer to uh, to start up my uh, my golf uh, season again. So, uh, yeah, everyone's got to make different decisions, different choices here, depending on where they're living and, and everything else. So uh, it's challenging times for sure. Well, if you don't mind me asking, what is what is kind of your rationale and, and reasoning for, you know, were you always planning to take a break like this this summer or did the uh, the impact of COVID kind of drive you to the to this decision? And are some of like the uh, the testing and the protocols and everything that's going to go into these PGA Tour events starting back up? Is that preventing you uh, from being enthusiastic about returning to golf? Well, so. You said that we we're living we're living full time in uh, in Orlando, Florida, at Lake Nona. But uh, as soon as school's uh, out, my family always goes back for the ten weeks uh, to Sweden in the summertime. Uh, we have a, a summer house back there and to see family and friends. Uh, and they they want to do that this uh, this year as well. I mean, Orlando gets pretty pretty steam in the summertime, and uh, you know, with with us being Swedish, and uh, that time is important. Uh, every summer for us so they still want to do that and then with the with the travel restrictions and the quarantine rules i'm not going to be able to do like i normally do go back and forth for for a number of events and get some off weeks in sweden so then i decided now to to go back for the early part of the summer instead and once i come back over here most at, at least as uh, as everything is looking now it's going to be a two-week self-quarantine period when I come back so then I'm only going to do that once so if I'm going to get some time at home in Sweden for me not to be on my own the whole summer and, and the family 10 weeks over there that's the decision I made and uh, and also I think it's going to be some some tricky uh, or some should I say uh, uh, hurdles to, to get over here in the early part uh, of, of the startup so I feel like I can I can sit back a little bit and then get everything going and then I'll jump on the train uh, at the second station rather than being there for, for the first takeoff. So uh, we'll see how everything plans out. Obviously, I hope it's going to go as smoothly as it can be and, and that we can get back to, to playing competitive golf in a, in a good way again. Uh, again, we, we're talking about professional sport, which is a big part of our lives. Uh, this uh, pandemic obviously impacts people in, in much bigger ways than not having something to watch on TV. So we, we all try to be wary of that and, and taking everything into account. And uh, when, when lives are being lost, uh, obviously a golf tournament always feels very much further further down on the on the important list of things. So uh, 
yeah, we we all just got to try and try and help out and do the best we can in in, in every shape or form. Well, I'm wondering, well, first of all, you, you hit the nail on the head there with uh, Sweden being a much better place to spend summer than Orlando. But do you get any sleep in Sweden in the summer? I mean, I, I, I think I was there in late May once and the sun rose about 3.30. So where, where do you live in Sweden and is it is it even further north so that, you know, you're getting 24 hours of daylight on, on certain days up there in the summer? Yeah, I um, I was born, uh, born in Gothenburg, which is still very much in the southern part and, and our place is even further down just north of Malmö uh, across from Copenhagen in Denmark so we're very much in the southern part and uh, you've got a lot of daylight that's for sure my wife and uh, her side of the family is from way up north and uh, I've spent some time in that part of Sweden over the years and uh, yeah it, it only gets a little shady for a couple of hours in the middle of the night and then and the sun is up uh, 21 22 hours uh, Per day, so uh, yeah, sleeping. Yeah, you certainly want to use the blackout uh, shades when, when you're up there because it could be a challenge to, to get enough sleep. Well, we're recording this on uh, Monday, May 18th. Yesterday was the the TaylorMade driving relief, our first live golf we've had back. Uh, it was interesting to get a look at live golf without any fans played. Where do you stand on the possibility or uh, of a of a Ryder Cup that would be played this year, this fall? that would not have fans on it. Do you think that that event should go on as planned or should they postpone it until there's a time when you can have it with fans? I guess that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's so hard to to know now exactly how things could work out. I mean, my feeling is the same. I mean, I love the Ryder Cup. I've had some of my greatest golfing experience of my career has been from playing in the Ryder Cup. and and the atmosphere, and, and of course, it's not going to be able to get the same atmosphere or even close to it with no fans. I mean, that's that's a certainty. On the other end, I think it could still be the, the good and fierce competition because you know what you're playing for, and, and all those things, that, that will still bring a, a, a big part of it to that, that week uh, if, if the event is being played. But yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see it played with, with crowds. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see how this startup uh, of the PGA Tour season will go. And they've announced that it's the first four events, if I'm not mistaken, that will be without spectators. So, I mean, somewhere down the line, that there's thoughts of having spectators obviously come back on the PGA Tour. And if that can happen, then... You know that why why shouldn't Ryder Cup be able to then have fans in in some shape or form? So uh, I, I guess we're just going to take one one baby step at a time here and, and see how we get on. There's complications with moving it up uh, into next year because then you got Presidents Cup, you got the Olympics, uh, hopefully, and and everything else. So it's uh, no easy shuffles uh, at this time. But uh, I'd love to see it with crowds in some shape and. But at the same time, I would love to see it played this year too. So, uh, yeah, I'm 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 lucky. Uh, those decisions are above my pay grade. I'm the same way. I just can't picture. You know, there's a lot of complications that come with delaying it. Yet at the same time, it's going to be such a not a dud without fans. But gosh, it's going to just be so different. But what about when it comes to qualification? Do you think that there should be any adjustments on either side? really on how these teams are determined. I, I have no idea what they really have planned for this, but obviously a huge curveball has been thrown in the qualification process. Do you foresee any changes being made? And if so, how would uh, how would you recommend they would be changed? I think the, the U.S. list, is since, since that one's going over a much longer period of time, it's, 
again, I'm I'm not a hundred percent on everything because I mean I'm I'm European. I worry about the about the European list, but I think the US one is is going pretty much from the previous Ryder Cup all the way up until the next one. So they'll they will have played for more points uh, than the than the European side have done up until this point. And with the with the uh, cancellation of of a lot of events, I think you I think we only played for about thirty three percent of the available points in the qualification. So yeah, I think. Uh, I think at some point here we we got to make decisions. Uh, I'm actually on the tournament committee on the on the European tour, uh, and we haven't really gotten into that part yet because we have two lists. One is for the European points, uh, and one is for the world ranking points accumulated during the qualification process. So at this time, the world ranking is frozen. We don't know when that's going to open up, so that will have an impact as well. And if it does open up. When Colonial say here gets going, you're gonna have a lot of European players who will not be able to to keep on earning world ranking points because there's no play in Europe at the same time. So it's uh, yeah, if you get one one answer, then that almost almost always raises another five questions here. It seems so everything is connected, and uh, but I, I I feel like there there will have to be some tweaks uh, because the qualification process. Have been affected that much, so uh, we we certainly need to look at it, and we will look at it. But at this point, we first first we got to see if, if there is a Ryder Cup uh, to be played in 2020. Otherwise, taking all those decisions are going to be kind of in vain. So we'll wait and see. Yeah, it. Uh, I, I'm hoping for 12 captains picks. I've 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 long advocated for that, and if there's ever a time to do it, that would be a good one. But completely changing gears here, uh, I've had a, a a good time kind of researching your career and getting more familiar with it. Uh, in the last couple of weeks getting ready for this interview. But the ups and downs of it are extremely intriguing to me and kind of learning uh, about your your growth into the game and some of the things you've dealt with early in the European tour. But for those that don't aren't familiar, and, and honestly, including myself in that, what was your amateur career like and then your transition uh, into professional golf in your early years like on the European tour? When I was 18, 1994, uh, I was selected for the for the boys' team in, in Sweden. Ten guys who got on that squad, and, and we got to travel around Europe and, and sometimes uh, even further out. Uh, played a, a World uh, Boys Amateur Championship in Japan in '94, so that was exciting times to travel all the way across the world to play golf there. And uh, and then I moved on to the uh, to the national team, which had a bigger squad and and. Obviously, guys who were in college over here in the states, and competition was harder. And then you have to kind of start over from the from the beginning again and work your way up. So uh, I'd say I had a I had a decent amateur career, uh, nothing great in like the British Am or anything like that. But I won a few few tournaments here and there, and played on a lot of teams, uh, European team championships, and and uh, I, I kind of crowned it with the with the Eisenhower Trophy, which is the the world championships for, for amateurs and we played in Santiago in Chile and I think Sweden finished six. So, I mean, uh, yeah, decent amateur career, but nothing, nothing spectacular. And then, uh, turned pro and made a pretty quick transition in about a, in about a year and a half. I, I went from amateur to, to winning the challenge tour, which is the step below the European tour, got onto the European tour in 2001 and, I think I won my tenth or eleventh event at the at the Belfry, an old Ryder Cup venue, uh, and beat kind of the the best players on the European tour. It was Darren Clark and Montgomery and 
Lee Westwood and Thomas Bjorn, all the guys were there. So that was a, a very strong first win on tour for me. And about seven months later, I, uh, I, w- I was struggling to hit any, any green grass on the golf course. So, uh, yeah, it was certainly uh, interesting times back then. Well, I'm going to read you a quote from a Golf Digest article in 2016, and it says that Stenson would even be playing tournament golf in 2016 was unbelievable in 2001. And you said, I was in a pretty dark place, but I've shown more than once that I'm not a quitter. So so what what happened? Because like you said, you won three times on the Challenge Tour in 2000, come out win in your 11th start at the Belfry in 2001. And then so what 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 happened with your golf swing? Was it a mental thing? And and how did you how did you cope with it? Yeah, obviously, I've been asked that question a million times, and uh, it, it's two really. They go hand in hand. The same way uh, when you're playing good, they're connected, and they're going to be connected when you're playing poorly. So um, I, I've used the saying that you normally don't develop mental problems if you if you hit it 300 yards down the center center line all the time. Then you're not start worrying about missing fairways. So yeah, I just started spraying it really off the tee, and the first. 20 provisional shots were probably no, not much thought in, but when you're hitting your 50th uh, provisional tee shot, then, then you start thinking like, ooh, oh, what's down the left or what's down the right here? So, uh, yeah, certainly certainly uh, ended up with, with both a technical and a mental problem. And, um, you know, there's always something good coming out of something bad. And uh, that's when my one of my ex-caddies then that, that I worked with back in 2001, he introduced me to, to Pete Cowan uh, at the end of that year. And I started seeing Pete and it was a long journey together with him and, and also my, my mental coach uh, back in Sweden. And uh, it took us probably about two seasons, a year and a half, two seasons before we were back uh, playing playing really good golf again. So uh uh, yeah, that was certainly challenging times, but I think you learn the most both about yourself and what you need to do when when things are tough and and uh, and you really got to dig deep to to get back. So I think yeah, I'm proud over a lot of tournament wins and a lot of things I've achieved on the golf course. But going through the two slumps that I've gone through is that's really character building and something I'm I'm really proud of. We had Brendan Todd on the podcast last fall, and uh, he was very open and honest about the yips that he had with his long irons and woods, and he explained what the technical issue was with that, and it was about arm tension. And honestly, I've had so many people reach out to me and say, ever since I heard that Brendan Todd podcast, I've loosened up my arms, and I've improved a lot. So I actually do want to ask, you know, what the technical things that you worked on with Pete Cowan, and I believe your sports psychologist is Torsten Hansen, if I'm reading that right. But yeah, yeah, what, what did uh, what did you guys work on? And the, the line that got me too was about hitting long irons with your eyes closed. So how did you address it? What are the specifics of how you address this? In the beginning, obviously, I hit bad shots. And I mean, Pete was not happy with the, with the way I looked technically when I came to him. So if you both have a technical issues, I mean, most, most golfers, and, and I know there's a lot of keen amateur players that listen to, to your podcast that will soon only listen to my podcast, but <laughs> they, they, they want to learn how to improve and, and, and want to get better. And, but most, most players in this game play just with hand-eye coordination or, or compensations and timing, really. Uh, the, the better your technique can get, the, the less you're going to be dependent on that. So my swing was, was obviously not where Pete wanted it. We had to put a lot of work into that side of things. But at the same time, mentally then, I mean, I had no confidence. And yeah, you develop a, a bit of a block, a mental block when you're going to hit the shot. That you, 
you, yeah, you're basically scared of, of where you're going to hit it and, and you got no trust in that it's going to go where you want it to. So other than just working on the technical side and trying to improve and get better there, we, we hit shots with, with my eyes closed because then you can't really know when the moment of impact is going to be, right? It gave me the opportunity to swing more freely and, uh, and, and kind of just start the swing and finish the swing and, and kind of pick up the ball on in, somewhere in the middle there. So I think a lot of times we, we're trying to, we're trying to just like hit the ball and, and instead of making a good pass that, that collects the ball on the way. So I think that, that could be something, I mean, I, I don't want to be responsible now for, for people hitting cars and, and whacking it all over the place because they're playing golf blindfolded <laughs> here, but uh, it, it could certainly be something to, to think about and maybe give a little bit of a go at times because uh, in pro I mean, I see a lot of guys who, who make a great couple of practice swings, but then it's certainly much more of a stab when they're gonna when they're gonna hit the the actual shot. So the more you can you can connect that and and just making that swing and and letting the ball get in the way of the club rather than actually trying to hit the ball, I think uh, that could be useful for for some. Well, having played a pro am with you, I'm wondering if that comment is targeted at me. But we'll we'll move on from that. But I, the reason yeah, I asked, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I'm kind of considered to be a nice guy at times, so I didn't want to bring that up. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's just leave it at that. My swings improved since then. Well, the reason I say that is, I think your your kind of ask about that is you are well known. I think if. You know, people ask about Henrik Stenson. The the first thing that will come to mind is your three wood and how well you hit your three wood. But I was stunned to see this that your strokes gained approach on the PGA Tour. You were first in 2019, first in 2018, first in 2015, and if you had enough qualifying rounds in 2016 and 17, you would have been second and third. So you went from not being able to you know find the club face to being it, uh, maybe not inarguably or arguably the greatest iron player in the world right now. So. There, there has to be something, I guess that's the question. Were you always such a great iron player coming up or is that a skill that, you know, you've just really honed over the years? Yeah, there's no question that ball striking has been the strong part of, of my game uh, throughout my career. Um, accuracy and I think especially back probably 2005, 6, 7, around that time, I was probably the best kind of accuracy and length combined at that time. Uh, for some reason, we don't hit any further as we get older, I guess. But I was really hitting a lot of fairways and hitting it, you know, real good distance. Uh, I, I still don't consider distance to be an issue for me, but there's a lot of guys out there who can hit a lot further than me. But the accuracy with the longer irons uh, have always been been a good uh, good strength of mine. And yeah, so anything from four iron to eight, nine iron, uh, I'd feel pretty confident to take on a lot of the guys in, in that kind of range and, and uh, it's certainly been an important part of my, my career to, to hit solid accurate iron shots and set up a, a few extra birdie chances compared to some other players. Yeah, long game that's been my strength uh, what really made a difference for me with the work I did with Pete back in 04 or 05 was to elevate my short game to a higher level and that's really when I broke into the top 50 in the world and started to be uh, in all the, the big events, the WGCs and the majors and so on. So the same drive for show, putt for dough, that, that's certainly a lot of truth in that. So if you want to compete with the best, you can't really afford to have any, any massive weaknesses. And you, you got to work on all aspects of the game and, uh, and try and be trying to be uh, competitive in, in, in every department, really. 
Well, also on that note, you have nine top five finishes in majors, and the one major you've won, you had to play literally maybe the best golf that's ever been played. And for a lot of golf fans, it's either win or bust. They don't care that much about who finishes second or who finishes fifth. But for someone that's been in the game a long time and competed for so many of these championships, can you put into perspective how hard it is to win a major championship? Yeah, it certainly didn't come easy on my end. As we know, yeah, you're looking you're looking at all the players. Uh, we got a bunch of guys who who've had stellar careers. They're great players and, and had great careers, but they didn't manage to get a win in a major and, and get one done on, on their CV. Uh, that's obviously disappointing for for some guys. Uh, I still don't feel like a, like a career should only be be made or, or, or broken on major championships. They, they play a big part, but I, I would have been very happy with, with my career uh, with or without the, the the open win. It's obviously the icing on the cake, and I feel like it elevated a lot of my other uh, players, WGCs, FedEx Cup, Race to Dubai. I mean, a lot of other great things that I've managed to, to accomplish get elevated with, with the open win, and it all kind of makes a, a very nice and solid package, but you have a number of players as well. They they won majors, but they might not have won that much else outside those major wins either. And then you got the guys who, who got a a bunch of of everything. So uh, it, it's certainly hard. You you got to have a little bit of luck as well. We were playing four majors a year, and if you're up there playing them for five or maybe ten years, I mean it's it, it's it's hard to win golf tournaments. You play against 144, 156 other guys uh, pretty much every week, and it's a game where we don't win a lot. So, yeah, it, you, you need a little bit of fortune too. But it, it's certainly the toughest test uh, on, on some of the, the best and toughest golf courses. And they're not easy to win. So uh, I'm delighted to, to manage to get that one. And standing there on the first tee at Troon on the Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon with Phil, I would have taken a, a 71 if that would have given me the Claret Jug for sure. But the way it turned out, we played some of our best golf for both of us. That just made it even more rewarding to to come on on top in, in that great match, and uh, I guess make it make it even more memorable. Super excited to to have won that one in 2016. Well, do you and Phil ever talk about that week? Did he say anything to you afterward? I mean, from from what I I forget who came up with this stat, but basically somebody measured the greatest performances in major and modern major championship history. Your performance was second only to Tiger's, uh, statistically speaking, Tiger in 2000. And Phil's was the fifth best in the in modern history, and he didn't win the title. Did he ever? Did you guys ever talk about like you know any of the fallout from there? Any funny snide comments he's made to you after that? No, I mean I just know that he was uh, he was obviously disappointed, uh, but he took that defeat uh, very graciously. And I mean he's off the tiger. He's the he's the second best player to, to play the game in the last twenty uh, twenty odd years. So I mean he's a great competitor and. I think that kind of helped me on that in that final round or the, the last two rounds that we played together. That I knew he was going to come after me as well and much as he can, and and that just kind of pushed me onwards to to try and get the, the absolute best out of my game, and I certainly did that. So I think that that was great. Uh, I, I wouldn't have shot twenty under four in a, in a final round sixty three if uh, if he wasn't chasing me the way he did. So uh, yeah, it was just one of those great great battles and. Uh, uh, always humbling when you when you mentioned in 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 that company, you know, and and when you're up there and, and playing against the best players uh, of your generation. 
well, it, it was it was a great week, and uh, uh, I, I wish I could uh, I could uh, shake that out once more. The interesting thing, uh, I played with Phil a lot in 2016. I think we played the first couple of rounds at, at Augusta, and we were drawn together at US Open. We're playing at Oakmont, and I played a solid first round, and and we were waiting uh, in the early stages of the of the second round, and and he said, uh, "Yeah, you you're playing." He just gave me. Out of the blue, really gave me a great compliment and said, "You've hit some fantastic shots here in the in the first round, and and uh, yeah, you really got the the game to win to win a, a major championship." And I said, "Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that." And I said, "As, as long as it's not going to be on your expense, I'm, I'm sure you're happy with that." And then five weeks later, Troon happened, so it was like that was that was just weird. <laughs> and that's what I say to him when we're walking off 18 on the Sunday and. Uh, we're kind of right next to each other there and, and uh, I just said do you remember the conversation he goes like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well was there any special motivation for you going up against him specifically in that 2013 at Muirfield you were a runner the runner up to him he it wasn't it's not necessarily remembered as a Stenson Mickelson duel as 2016 is but uh, he had this crazy birdie finish to win it by three but does that even somewhat enter your mind as you're playing there in 2016 it didn't really at that time because I that was one of the one of the great or one of my best chances really to to win a major up up until that, that point and I think we were four or five players it was pretty tight when we entered the back nine and I remember I had a lip out for birdie on ten and then I made a bit of a clumsy bogey on I think third twelve or thirteen or something like like that but then I still. I still finished strong and finished second, but it didn't feel like it was. Uh, it was more. I was one of the guys in the in contention, and, and Phil was there, and then he pulled away with, uh, I think, four birdies in the last six holes to to win it uh, pretty comfortably in the end. So I didn't feel like it was a rematch or anything like that. Well, I told him actually when we were going out to the prize giving because he wondered at Troon if he was required to attend the prize giving and I said well I, I stood there in 2013 and he didn't even remember that I was second in 2013 <laughs> so it just shows you when you're kind of excited of, of about your win and, and you're in just coming off uh, a finish like that you you might not even remember who, who stood next to you on the on the green receiving the silver medal but uh, it was it didn't feel like it was a rematch in that sense I just felt like I had I had that runner-up finish at the Open in 2013. I had a couple of third finishes at, at the Open and, and some good finishes at uh, uh, both US Open and US PGA. So I, I felt like it, it doesn't matter to me if I finish second, third, or fourth. I, I was just all in for, for the win here at Troon and nothing else really really mattered. Uh, of course, if if the battle is lost and you can't win, you'd, you might try to finish second as well, ranking points and FedEx points and a healthier check and everything else. but you know, when I was going into that Sunday, it was just uh, it was just winning or nothing really. That that was in in my mindset. Well, before I let you go, you had, you had touched on uh, the two. You, you mentioned two slumps in your career, and I'm wondering if you could take the listeners kind of through the timeline of the second slump and what what caused it, and and kind of you know whether or not the perspective of coming out of the first one really helped you through the second one as well. Yeah, it did for sure. So we're talking about backing winning ways on the European Tour in 2004 after going through this this real bad time. 02 was really the season that was horrible. And 03, I was 
still struggling, but towards the end of that year, I kind of got it together a little bit more. And, and then, you know, four, I won my second time on the European Tour, and that really felt like it was, you know, come back and uh, had some, some great wins throughout the 05 or 06, so, uh, 06 or 07 or 08, uh, 09, and won the players in 09. And it was kind of after that, maybe a year after or something like that, maybe I took my eye off the ball a little bit or, you know, other things, you, family and, and so on. You, you get kids, that's always going to impact your, your day-to-day life. Uh, I think it seems like some guys are playing better when they have a kid and some guys seem to, to play a little bit worse uh, because of maybe the distraction and lack of sleep and too many diaper changes or whatnot. But uh, it's certainly a life-changing experience to get children and they will impact you one way or the other. Then in, in 2011, I was just I was just playing poorly. And I guess no matter what I tried to do, really, I, I didn't really get it to turn around. And I think, yeah, I mean, compared to the slump I had in the one or two or three there, the one in 11 was, was really kind of baby stuff in that sense. So uh, I, I feel like at the end of that year, I was just tired of playing badly. So I kind of took a step back or two and, and regrouped. And I had not worked with my with my mental coach there for, for a couple of years either. And we kind of started back up uh, really a program to, to get back into into things. And yeah, hard work pays off. And it was really some of the work I did myself in the early part of 2012. And then in the summertime, I, I started up with, with my uh, mental coach again. And and it was really the work that, that was put in under 2012, I think, that was that really bear fruit in, in 2013 and onwards and uh, uh, yeah a lot of it is about motivation and, and hunger and uh, playing poorly for a long time I think it, it was frustrating but it also gave me the, the energy to want to come back and, and play well again so it seems like it, it yeah ebbs and flows and I mean nothing is a straight line the, the stock market certainly not and, and life in general so yeah, sometimes we, we kind of go backwards, but it's uh, it, it's also about really putting the work in and, and making sure you come back even better. And uh, and I managed to do that. So, uh, yeah, I've had some, some great runs and it's been some challenging times, but 20 years on tour, you wouldn't expect anything else either, really. So, uh, yeah, you, you've got to work hard. And if you do, uh, I think you get rewarded. Amen. Well, last one, last question. We'll let you get out of here. But uh, how many clubs have would you say you've broken over your golf career? Why did that have to be the, the last question? <laughs> well, <if> I... <laughs> that's so mean. Okay, yeah, that's for me saying that you stabbed it when we played together in the pro and everything else. Right? I had to get one shot. Come on. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a lot. It's not something I'm proud of. I think at the same time, it's not something I want to certainly take out of there because I think that that kind of fire in the belly I expect a lot from myself I, I expect a lot from my team around me and I'm sure that can be hard at times even though I, I I would like to consider myself a fair guy so if I mean when I'm, I'm going to be the one making the most mistakes hitting the the most bad shots and, and everything else but still I guess that's the downside of being a bit of a perfectionist uh, I, I've probably broken more clubs in, in practice than I've done during competition and uh, there's a lot I'm not even going to try and estimate the number it's uh, not not the one that you want to show up especially not for kids and so on and 
uh, it, it set a bad example. So I'm trying to make it graciously these uh, these days. And I think with age, it, it, everyone seems to calm down a little bit. So it's certainly it's certainly less uh, in the last ten years than it was before that. I don't know if we can leave it at that. And uh, <laughs> you're just trying to show off how how fast the uh, Callaway trucks can turn around new equipment. That's what it is, right? Put a positive. Oh yeah, spin they on it. they certainly had to work over the years, and I thank them for that. And, <laughs> and I think instead of paying for for some reshafts and and so on, I've, I I hope I've I've given that money to charity and, and made up for that part. So, <laughs> well, yeah. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Henrik, for uh, for joining us, and uh, best of luck with your summer travels and enjoy your summer up in Sweden. We yeah. look forward to uh, hearing you on the po- on your podcast very soon, as well as uh, your return to golf. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Cheers. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.